Today's readings are Ezekiel 34, number 23 through 31. can be found on page 796 of the Bible's next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them and the land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of nations. When they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the, the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. It's the word of God, of the Lord. in prayer. God of grace, as we come into this room from all kinds of different places in terms of the stresses of life and the distractions, um, but also in terms of where we find ourselves with respect to you and how likely we are to look, really open up our hearts and our lives to you for safety. Um, and, and whether or not we, we have experienced you or your church or people who talk a lot about you as being safe. And so whether we, we do see this as a safe place or whether we're on edge, I pray that you would speak to all of us through these ancient words. Breathe life to them through the presence of your Holy Spirit and help us to see that even though we come from so many different spiritual trajectories, we are universally the same in that we're all more of a mess than we care to admit to each other and to those who are close to us even. We're more of a mess, but you say, and you show us in, in these words, in these scripture passages, in this book, you show us that you love us and your response to our mess is to move towards us with grace. May we believe that a little bit more as we walk away today by your, by your work right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, for sure, the, the consensus is that Oprah Winfrey, on her show, she had the gift of creating safe space, and she has a great track record in terms of safety. And the things that she was able to do through her, her program every day. Um, she educated parents... Um, for example, on one show, as, as to how easily their kids could get lured away by someone if they were left unattended for just a short amount of time. 
She uh, helped women understand why they had gotten into relationships where they were uh, physically uh, battered and also how to get out of them. Lots of things that she stood for in terms of safety of people. She, she had programs that by the end of the program, people were writing letters in saying, you know, when I watched the show today, uh, when I came to the point of watching your show today, I was, I was convinced that today was the day I was going to commit suicide. And because of your show, you know, I didn't. I had the strength to go one more day. And what was cool about that was then Lisa, uh, uh, she had this way of, of leveraging and grabbing hold of those, that, the power of those moments. And, and when she would get those kind of letters, then she would have another show maybe six months later that would have those people who were affected by the original show, and she'd have the people from the original show talk about how, how, uh, how she really saved people through her show, the power of community and connecting around similar issues. She was able to reveal schemes of child molesters um, so that parents could be more aware and keep their kids safe. Um, she, she created safe space for people to talk about issues that they wouldn't have otherwise talked about. In fact, that's what a lot of people have written and spoken about Oprah. For example, uh, Gloria Steinem, she says this, by inviting honesty from the famous and the obscure alike and by focusing on understanding instead of blaming, Oprah linked people rather than ranking them. Oprah created a global campfire that filled our timeless need to gather in a circle, listen to, and learn from the stories of others, and tell our own. Maria Shriver said, Oprah's show gave her audience an outlet for the fears, doubts, and hopes that many of us keep locked up inside ourselves. And then John Travolta, toasting Oprah at one of her birthday parties, he said this, that what, well, he toasted her, some of her accomplishments, her... Um, her work for underprivileged children in South Africa and her work to put schools throughout that country. He toasted her intelligence and her inspiration. And then he said, and you do it all without judging. I think that in a lot of ways that's, that's what has created or that's how she created a safe space through her show. And if you stop and think about that, you, know, you do it all without judging. I think that taps into something that is, we might not even realize how big it is, but how, how much we value in our society, in our culture today, almost religiously, the, the idea of not judging, of non-judgmentalism as absolutely necessary for community safety. Absolutely necessary for personal growth. The idea that you don't judge. And Oprah was, I mean, she hit this out of the park. One episode on Oprah, she went into a prison where four women were being, uh, doing their sentence, holding, carrying out their sentence, and she brought them out and was able to get them to sit on chairs kind of in a row with her in the middle in this jail. And these were women who had, who had killed their infant children. And she was able to get them to just talk about that on national TV. And she was able to go into that. She basically said, I went into that interview, through her exact words, with, with no judgment. I, my goal was to go into that interview with no judgment. And she said after, just to give you a sense of how that was communicated, after the show, one of the women came up to her and said, um, I can't believe you don't hate us. And Oprah's response was, um, oh, I don't hate you. 
because I see that that's what you did with your pain and I do something else. Now that, that in a sense, is a pretty massive gift of not judging. She did a good job. There's power there. But I want to suggest something. For, in terms of what the Bible, what we're going to get into, into today in terms of this Bible story, um, let's not too quickly disassociate judgment from safety. Let's, let's consider for a second the need for judgment. There's, there's some reasons why you actually need judgment. The first um, is, I don't know how much of it's a reason, it's just a, um, um, it's just a hypocrisy alert. You need judgment because you're going to judge anyway. I don't care how hard you try, how much you decide you're going to be non-judgmental towards everybody, there's going to be somebody that for you it's acceptable to judge or some group of people or some kind of activity. It's going to be, you know, you've, you've just decided and in your group of friends no one ever calls anyone out for judging this because that's okay to judge. So, okay, so reason one why you need judgment is you're going to do it anyway, but there's another really big reason you need judgment and that's because if you ever intend at all to do, make any difference in injustice in this world. If you ever want to set your sights on any injustices that are happening in this world, inherent to that is, is to be able to look at the world to, and look and say there's something that is wrong. There's right and there's wrong and that is wrong. And, and judgment, objective judgment is needed for that. In a sense, if you're going to be going around at all fighting injustice or setting your life against things that are unjust, um, you have to wrestle with the idea of, do I have a, a really sure gauge for what is right or wrong? And sometimes it feels a little shaky, right? Because we, if, you, you really got, if you're a student of history, you've got to know that our grandkids, if, if we're lucky to have grandkids, our grandchildren, some of you maybe already do, but it's kind of a young crowd, but our, our grandchildren are going to look at us and they're going to talk with their friends and they're going to say, can you believe what grandpa and grandma or, grand, you know, can you believe what our grandparents actually believed, actually thought? They all kind of agreed back in the day that this is what you had to believe about this and this is what you had to believe about this. And it'll be absolutely clear to them, obvious to them and all their friends, that that is the most archaic, ridiculous, illogical thing ever. I, don't, I can't tell you because I can't call the future, can't predict the future. I can tell you what that's going to be, but it'll happen. There'll be something that you and I hold strongly to. So do we have, I mean, a, a Christian who goes into fighting injustice, just as an aside, a Christian who goes into fighting injustice theoretically has something more than just a cultural ethos of what we can say is right and what we can say is wrong. You know, what we today are all agreeing on is right or wrong. Because a Christian says, I'm going out to fight injustice because there's a God who is against injustice. And there's a sort of a, a foundation there that doesn't shift with each generation in terms of what we decide is right and what we decide is wrong. So you need, you need judgment just to fight any injustice if you intend to do that, but you also need it to deal with your guilt. You need judgment to, fight, to, to deal with your guilt. A lot of us, basically because we've decided to distance ourselves from judgment in our life and in our own personal development, what we end up doing is we, we, we end up having to shelve our guilt. So because we're constantly pushing judgment away, when guilt, when legitimate guilt, and there is guilt in life, there are things that... Um, that come up to the surface. And what we end up doing with them is we, if, if we're really astute at pushing judgment away, judgment never handles that guilt. The guilt gets shelved. And when you shelve all your guilt throughout life and it's never dealt with through some kind of objective judgment, it begins to fester 
and it doesn't go away, it returns to you. I don't know if you have anything, any experience in your life where whenever your mind triggers that, it can be 10 years away, it can be 20 years ago, it can be 40 years ago, and when you remember that, you get embarrassed. Some, something that happened. Some of you are smiling knowingly. Something, something in your past, it hasn't been dealt with yet fully. It hasn't been totally reconciled. Um, it's almost as if we, we, just like our culture is fond of storage units, you know, what, an, what a strange cultural phenomenon that we have these businesses that are dedicated for our junk to be stored away. Um, well, just like with that, we, we think our stuff, we put our stuff away. In a sense, we store our guilt, we shelve it away in, in spiritual storage units, and we imagine that it's never going to have to be opened up again. But just like in now in today's world, we have these auctions, these storage unit auctions where treasure hunters go and try to bid. In the same way, eventually the door's got to get open and that stuff's got to get dealt with at festers. We need judgment. We need, in a sense, even our own personal, even with the smallest stuff that creates little seeds of guilt, it can just fester and grow and bother us to no end. We need judgment. We're terrified of it, though. We're terrified of who we might let look into our issues that bring up guilt. And so we have no confidence, often, of where to go or what to do when it comes to our spiritual... We, we, know, we have no safe place. Now, the Bible, when it gets into this uh, chapter 34 of the prophecy of Ezekiel, it's basically an ancient oracle of safety to the, to the ancient Israelites who were scattered... Um, and they were under, um, they, were, they were a captive people. They had been exiled. And suddenly amidst a lot of judgment, you get this oracle of safety. This oracle of safety. And God is portrayed as being a, someone who you can trust as safe and who is going to provide safety for you. And so in verse 25 the people are to picture themselves having a covenant having been made with them, a covenant of peace. And I will rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. Verse 28, they will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. Uh, these, are, these are powerful images and they all come from um, the one who's going to make safety. God is the one who's going to make the safety in this chapter. So let's look at this. Um, and I've spent a fair amount of time just getting us to this point of introducing the passage. So let's just real quickly look at how God, I mean, you may, not, you may still have a lot of hesitation about, is God really safe? Or is church really safe for me to, to really be completely real? I think this is an argument that God is safe. So let's see if we can find something in here that helps us believe that. Um, God basically portrays himself as shepherd. It's the dominating metaphor. It's the safety metaphor. So he's the shepherd, and what it does is it teaches us three things that are, that are coming right out of this passage. First, that he searches for you. That's what a shepherd does. God searches for you. God gives himself for you. And he judges. Say the best one for last. So he, he searches for you, he gives himself for you, and he judges all right, so let's start with searching. This is something you need to know about God. God. God commits himself to searching for you. Um, it's a little arbitrary to read just the part we read today because this, it's part of a big kind of oracle of God. And you've got to look for a second at verse 11 where it says, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. 
as shepherds look after their scattered flocks when they are with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered. This is what the shepherd does. It's what the shepherd promises to do. Um, God is saying to us that it's part of his character that he, in your life and in your relationship with him, that he is going to be searching high and low for you all of your life to bring you home. And Jesus uh, just confirms this when he talks about the kingdom of God in a parable that he spoke. He said, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus talks about God being this way, this shepherd chasing down sheep. And I wonder do you, if you know God that way. If, you, if that rings true, if you're incredibly skeptical to believe that it's true, think about that. Where are you at? Do you know this kind of God? Have you let God find you, in a sense? Um, one of the things about this is that it's definitely a surprising metaphor. It's a surprising image. I think a lot of us imagine that we have to search and search and search until we finally find God, and then even then we have to wonder, is he going to open the door and let us in? Is he going to do anything to, to kind of turn and accept us? We often just come into the relationship with God that way, with that default drive. Um, so it's surprising to hear that God is a shepherd going out, looking high and low for the one and it's, you're always supposed to picture yourself as that one, as the one lost sheep, right? Um, but it's also a little bit unflattering because you have to accept the identity of being a sheep. Um, one shepherd, so a modern-day writer who's a shepherd-turned-pastor, he wrote this about sheep. Sheep are notorious creatures of habit. Left to themselves, they will follow the same trails until they become ruts. They'll graze the same hills until they turn to desert wastes. They pollute their own ground until it is corrupt with disease and parasites. You're a sheep. <laughs> How's that feel, right? Um, it's a little bit unflattering to think of yourself in your spiritual search as being like a sheep who needs shepherding. But what the Bible does is, is, is God decides he's going to lock himself in. This is the best analogy. This is the best metaphor to consider what he's like. He's going to lock himself into being the shepherd who chases you down despite the fact that you're, the, you know, you're this unworthy kind of wayward sheep making ruts with your life and going constantly trying to go astray. This is what the Bible reveals about God, is that he makes, he, he makes promises where he locks himself into acting a certain way with us. He, we, we come at the relationship and we think we define it, but God in the Bible basically says, accept this, please accept this definition of my relationship with you. This is how I've set things up. Um, in the Old Testament, it was talked about as a covenant that God kind of makes a contract and kind of stipulates what this relationship is going to be like. He, and it, it involves him locking himself into this mode of being the one who's going to always commit to chasing you down. God locks himself into this kind of relationship with us. Um, so that part of it is, is safety. So that you know, you always know, no matter how low you go, no matter how much you fall, you know, even if you're in that rut again, you know He's going to come like a shepherd does and chase you down and bring you home. It's an amazingly safe image. And to know that God has just set things up that way, that is his relationship with you. 
it's amazingly safe um, as long as you're comfortable being a sheep. <laughs> That's the hard part. Um, Jesus had his most judgmental and harsh words for those who were self-righteous. Or another, word, another way to say that is they were self-shepherding people. They didn't, want to, they didn't need, need a shepherd. They didn't want to be sheep. But if you're willing to be a sheep, you've got the shepherd ready to chase you down anywhere. Now that's the first thing this passage tells us about how safe God is. And the second thing is that he gives himself for you. So it gets even more extreme. It gets even more good. When you read the first verse of our passage today in Ezekiel 34, it says right there, it says, I will place over them my, a shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. And this, of course, looking back after you hear a lot of the things Jesus says, this is talking about Jesus. I will set over them my shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. This is a way of talking about that God's salvation is going to get concrete and he's going to send a shepherd. And so when Jesus, Jesus only confirms this when he says in John chapter 10, he says, um, let's see, he says in verse 11 of chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. See if you can catch the trend here. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one who takes it from me, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. You get the emphasis when Jesus talks about he's the good shepherd. His point is, it's loud and clear, he lays down his life for the sheep. And this is actually to the original audience. I mean, we kind of hear it and we don't really enter into it very much because we don't, I don't know, any shepherds in the house. Um, but, but in his day, they would hear this in this particular conclusion. I'm the good shepherd, therefore I lay down my life for the sheep. It, it's ludicrous. It's, it's a ridiculous thing to say. The, a very, I mean, all shepherds at that time, they would have understood this idea, the first idea of I search for the one and I leave the 99 be behind. A lot of people would have resonated and had a sense in their connection to agriculture that um, in the first century, oh yeah, yeah, that's how it is, sure enough, yep. Um, but, uh, you know, there would have been a little bit of resonance, but when Jesus says, and I lay down my life for the sheep, he's saying, oh, my way of shepherding is I, be I become the sacrificial lamb. I, the shepherd, Lay down my life for the, sh for the sheep. The, the correct logical response to this teaching of people in Jesus' day is to say that he's got an unhealthy prioritization of the sheep's welfare. I mean, he just, it, that's just the, that's the strong response that you would have. That he's, overly, he's, he's put an overly extreme value um, on the sheep. And that's the point. If you're, you know, if you're willing to enter into the analogy and feel that dissonance, that ridiculous, ludicrous direction he took with the shepherd analogy, then, then you're starting to get some of the cognitive dissonance that opens up the door to understand the extreme desire God has to bring you back into his flock and to his care, to shepherd you. That's how far he's gone, to, to ludicrous extents, to, to the extreme degrees his son, the good shepherd, gave his life for stupid old sheep who don't know how to find their way back home. 
decided to secure the relationship once and for all by becoming the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb. Okay, so he searches for you. He also gives himself for you. Now the hard one, he judges you. If you look at, if you look at verse 22, which we didn't read, but again, this is all part of one big oracle. It says, I will save my flock. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. And then the terrifying words, I will judge between one sheep and another. Basically, the question, or the, the question that this is answering is how, how on earth will verse 23 through verse 31 be accomplished? How will all this, this amazing picture of safety, this image, this oracle of, of spiritual safety with this God, how will that happen? Well, it happens somehow in connection with God judging. With God judging. I will judge between one sheep and another. God has the ability to judge rightly and he has the desire to judge graciously. And so basically what we learn, if you kind of follow the whole story of scripture and then you again look at Jesus as the one who becomes the sacrificial lamb, is you see how the whole story leads towards Jesus holding up a cup right before the end of his life and saying, this is a cup and these are words that I'll say um, shortly in our service. This is the cup of a new covenant in my blood for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. This is the cup of a new covenant. There's that word again. Here again, God locks himself into a fresh depiction of this covenant. Uh, and the judgment, where does the judgment go? Well, the judgment goes on the son, on the sacrificial lamb. And, um, and really how this works is it gives God a new lens through which he judges between one sheep and another. Here's why this is safe. It's terrifying to read the Bible and to find anywhere that it says God is going to judge between one person and another person. It's a terrifying concept. We're absolutely uncomfortable with this concept. But look at how Jesus makes it something you can actually understand and listen to and actually believe in. Because Jesus becomes the lens through which God's judgment happens. So he takes the place to shield us from the judgment and holds up a cup and says, now forgiveness is offered to all. And, and now my Father in heaven, now the shepherd, the great shepherd, looks down and any judgment that happens takes place through that lens of forgiveness. And how strange it is that so often we walk into church, if you, if you come regularly, you walk into church and people are walking in every week and thinking, God's opinion of me is precarious today. What does God think of me? Have I done enough? Uh, am I in a good place with God? Is salvation anywhere possible for me? How, how odd that we would be in doubt about that now that God has guaranteed the lens of judgment for any of those who are willing to be his sheep has been completely solidified and forgiveness and grace comes to us because of Jesus, because of the cup of the new covenant in his blood. And so here's how it works is that everything we do is not a pursuit of being a better sheep and being able to stay in his flock. So, you know, all of the, the things you might do religiously or the things you might do in an attempt to get closer to God, all that they are, everything that you might do is all about just you're already in the flock. That's secure. It's about being, continuing to be shepherded, continuing to allow yourself to be shepherded. So any pr amount of praying you do, any amount of reading the Bible, any amount of pursuing community in one of our community pods, 
any amount of singing uh, or saying prayers or uh, experiencing the Eucharist and coming forward for that or accepting prayer after the service up front with the prayer servants. Any of that is all it is about is not, not achieving your place in the flock. It's about just allowing yourself to be shepherded by the one who's put the lens of forgiveness over how he looks and judges this world. Are you willing to be his sheep? And if you are, if you make it kind of through all this and you believe somehow eventually that God is a safe uh, shepherd for you, then basically it puts us in a new position in life. So I just want you to consider this very practical thing and then I'll close in prayer. Is that when, when you accept all of this and God is your shepherd, then what you're doing is you're joining the search party. Uh, the, the shepherd's search party. You know how he's going out and looking for the one. In a sense you are now invited that your life is wrapped up in others experiencing the gracious touch of and the gracious lens of forgiveness through which God has looked at you. And so you have no other lens to look at others. And so one of the things this means is that your relationships become a lot less selfish. You stop using relationships to get things for yourself, whether it's your identity or actual things or power or uh, job. You stop using relationships for selfish gain and you start to have a curiosity about how God might be reaching out in his safe way to these people that you know. You start to see yourself, you see yourself in the weak or the broken people in your life. Instead of the way you used to look, before you were sufficiently shepherded by God, you used to look down on people because they didn't do things the way you thought they were supposed to do things. You now look, and even in the weakest and broken people that you used to judge most harshly, you see yourself in them. You see the same waywardness of sheep. And then the last thing that I want to say about being in God's search party is that you commit to others in the way that God commits to you. It's very strange to commit to people and to commit to community with your life and to, to have basically give people the message through your behavior that I am here for you till the end, no matter what you do. Um, I'm here. That's what people who are part of the search party do. And I actually think we could learn a lot from Oprah's example. I think she actually models, when she sits down with people, women who killed their children, and she allows the fact that judgment has been carried out already through other places and other people and other streams. She leaves the judgment to the courts and to perhaps angry family members who just can't forgive what someone has done to one of their relatives. And she herself just listens and just sees the commonality sees another sheep. Um, I think that, that being a part of God's search party is always kind of pushing us more and more in that direction to let God do the judging that he's, he is really capable of doing it in a safe way. Let God do the judgment. And then look at people with fresh eyes. Let us pray. Dear God, I pray that some of this might become true in our lives and in this church. In fact, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be so active and alive that we would experience bursts of... Um, in this community of gestures of, of loving, safe grace to people we know um, and to people who are here and people who are not here, to people who we invite along to community pods or we invite along to church or we just, people we know at work and that there would be a cacophony of stories of grace abounding once we apply our own status as shepherds who are, sh who are or sheep who are safe in the flock of the great shepherd. Help us to know that that's true and live like that's true. We pray in Christ's name, amen.